we began this series on the book of Joel, I told you that the main theme of the book, or one of the main themes, was the day of the Lord. And three things happen on the day of the Lord. Judgment, theophany, and salvation. And so Joel starts out the book by proclaiming these judgments that are going to come upon the people of Judah. Judgments of locusts and drought. And God in the past, had revealed himself on this terrifying, in this terrifying cloud on top of Mount Sinai before the people of Israel. But now God reveals himself in this terrifying cloud of locust swarms, a theophany of judgment, an appearance of God. And all of this was to lead the people towards repentance. And they did. And they did repent. They returned to God. They gave him their whole hearts, and in turn, God promises to restore them and give them abundance. He promises salvation, judgment, theophany, salvation, the day of the Lord. This is a primary theme in the book of Joel. And all of that that I just reviewed was in relative proximity to Joel's day. But then Joel goes further and he begins prophesying about other days of the Lord. A series of days of the Lord. And so you see a day when upon God's appearing, he pours out his Holy Spirit. His redeeming, prophet-creating, saving Holy Spirit. You see a day of judgment for the nations, a final day. You see a day of judgment for the Phoenicians and the Philistines. Days of the Lord in series. Now, like I said last week, Joel is not concerned with giving us a timeline telling how these things will unfold. He's concerned with developing this theme, the day of the Lord. And as we look at our verses today, we're in Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, and we're going to see this theme develop and take us to the finish line, the final day, a day of war and a day of judgment. A day to be terrified of and a day to look forward to. And so as we look at the passage, I want to show you this thread that Joel is pulling on, a thread that takes us all the way to the Battle of Armageddon, the final day. And I want to show you what Jesus' role is in that day. And all the things that we're looking at, all these verses, all the things that I'm saying, it's leading us to one question. One question, the most important question. But I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. Let's pray. The weight of these things is tremendous, Father. And we are so apt to treat them like things said on Sunday and forgotten on Monday. Let this weight sink deep into our souls and change us to the core. Lord, I pray that for each one of us, your words from Joel and my words today would lead all of us to salvation, to maturity, to growth, to find a refuge in your Son. 
and to grow in our worship of you. Lord, prepare us to receive the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Joel chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Again, this is about the final day, the day of judgment and the defeat of all of God's foes. So I want to remind you that God is speaking through the prophet Joel. So these are God's very words. The Almighty himself speaks and he summons the, rebellion, the, the rebels that have risen against him to this valley. He summons them. He summons them to Armageddon. Again, the summons, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am a warrior. You have mighty men, you have soldiers and farmers and the weak, and they are all summoned. Every person from among the rebellious nations is summoned. They are to gather in the valley of decision. And now we've been seeing this reversal in the book of Joel. What happened to Judah being reversed, now happening to the nations. Remember when God summoned all of the people to the temple, all the people of Judah to the temple to repent and to worship? He said this, In Joel chapter 2, he said, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. From the elders to the infants and the newlyweds, not one of God's people is exempt from this solemn assembly of repentance. But now, in chapter 3, Not one person is exempt from the coming war, the coming battle. From the the mighty men to the weakling, they must all come. And he tells them to take their implements of peace and livelihood and beat them into weapons, their plowshares and their pruning hooks. So, Joel is reversing something else now. He's not reversing something we've already seen in his book. He's reversing something from the other prophets, from Isaiah and Zechariah, or Micah rather. And these were promises, 
prophecies of everlasting peace. So I want to show you Isaiah's prophecy that Joel is reversing. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that's a beautiful picture of the peace that God will establish, of the reign of his kingdom, where nation will not rise up against nation, and they will not learn war anymore, but there will be this everlasting, transcendent peace. But the nations in Joel's picture are the nations that are the enemies of God, that have rebelled against God and his kingdom. And so this is the lot for the enemies of God, that they must weaponize their implements of peace, which become these pathetic trinkets before the Almighty God. Indeed, God summons the nations to himself for this war, which means that God is instigating the war. But he's not doing it to be the aggressor or to be malicious. He's doing it because he's the arbiter of justice, the one who repays and the final judge. And so now he summons the nations to himself because they have scattered his people and they have, they have sold his children into slavery and they have unlawfully divided up the land. And so he is bringing them justice. Now is the time, as he has determined, to give them justice that they have earned. So he summons the nations to come up to him, to gather at the foot of his holy mountain, which we read about in Joel 2.1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day, the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So this is filled with apocalyptic symbolism, where Joel sees the nations gathering at the foot of Mount Zion in this great valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, containing all the nations. And as I said last week, this is not a literal valley. You won't find the Valley of Jehoshaphat on any map, certainly not anywhere near the Mount Zion, near Jerusalem. This image of a Valley of Jehoshaphat and Mount Zion is a picture of something else pointing us towards something else. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. It can also be translated as Yahweh has decided. The judgment has been made in the valley of Jehoshaphat. So high above this valley in which the nations are gathered, God looks down from his holy mountain on the nations. The decision decision has been made. The nations don't come to be condemned. They come condemned already. And now it is time to exact justice. The decision has been made. 
I want you to see what I think is a very humbling and beautiful and incredible change that occurred in verse 11. So you go back to chapter 2. It's a similar picture. God up on his mountain, the people of Judah down below, God judging them, and streaming down from the mountain comes God's army of locusts. But now, isn't locusts that come charging down? It's his warriors. You see that in, in verse 11. Or I'm sorry, in... Uh, now where did it go? It's, it's in there. Down in verse 11. Yes, bring down your warriors, O Lord. Bring down, bring them down from the mountain. The prophet Zechariah speaks of this. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then the Lord will go out and fight those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Then the Lord will come, and all the holy ones with him. You look at that thread in the Old Testament, and very quickly you learn that he's talking about his angelic host coming down with him to fight against his foes. And then, sort of the chapter turns, and you come to the New Testament, and you learn that it's not just the angelic host, but all the redeemed. Come with him, God's people, glorified and victorious. And Revelation chapter 19 gives us a beautiful picture of this. For the marriage supper, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, of us who are the saints. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And all the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Joel is indeed giving us a picture of the very end where God descends the mountain with the angelic hosts and all the redeemed clothed in our fine linen, white and pure. To make battle. But the imagery is beginning to shift now in Joel. Imagery is going from battle to the courtroom. The Almighty and His heavenly host and the redeemed poised on the mountain. You almost expect Charge, you know, go down and make war, but you don't get that. Suddenly there's a sovereign judge who takes his seat at the bench, ready to drop the gavel and deliver his final decision. And the battle and the trial become one. And the war turns into the execution of God's sentence. Now look at verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. 
Now I want to show you three places in the Bible that use the same type of imagery. And I warn you, it's going to get really heavy and maybe even a little disturbing. You know, the Bible is not all nice. It can be quite gruesome. Isaiah is the first prophet to use this imagery. The imagery of the wine press. And he sees God ascending from Edom after having delivered his judgments. Treasonous Edom. And his garments, they're all stained in red. And his appearance is great and glorious and fearful. And Isaiah asks him, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like he who treads the winepress. And God replies, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. That's a pretty gruesome scene. The day of the Lord had come upon Edom. But there's a day coming for the whole earth. And it's a day that Jesus talked about at length. And I'm going to give you a little snippet of what Jesus said from Matthew 13. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And then after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, God gives the Apostle John a vision. And he sees this day. And it's a vision that builds on the imagery of Isaiah and Joel and Jesus. And John says, I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes, the, the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city, and blood flowed as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So that picture in the book of John is a picture of Armageddon. This final battle, final judgment. And you can clearly see, I hope, this thread now weaving through the whole of the Bible. A thread that warns humanity of this judgment. It is coming. An apocalyptic thread that God wove for us through Isaiah and Joel and Jesus and John and more. 
Why does this happen? Does it make you want to ask that question? Why does it happen? Why does God crush his enemies like this? Why is there so much wrath? Because God is love. Because reality is based on the nature of God. Therefore, the truest reality is a reality that's saturated with love and with justice and with righteousness and with joy. These are true reality. And sin defiles all of these things. Love is corrupted by hatred and selfishness and justice by oppression and abuse and righteousness by pride and immorality and joy by pain and sorrow. All products of sin, all defilements of reality, all defilements of the, of the nature of God. So when God treads the wine press, he is restoring and upholding reality. He is crushing all that once defiled his name, all that once defiled his good creation, and all that once brought pain upon his people, and all that tried to overthrow his holy name. He's crushing it because it's an abomination to him, and it's suffering to us. And he's crushing it. When God treads the wine press, listen, when God treads the wine press, redemption is complete. Nothing is left now but love and justice and righteousness and mercy. For all the rest has been crushed. And all that's left are these good things and God himself who gives it all so freely. It's glorious when God treads the winepress. And it's our redemption complete. Back in Joel 3.13... This valley of decision is likened to a great vat, brimming with grapes. And this vat is so full of grapes that the accumulated weight of them is crushing the juices out of the grapes. And the juices begin overflowing the vat. If you're the one to tread, this is not something that can be ignored. It demands your attention now. It's time for this wine press to be tread, to be trodden, I guess. The sins of the nations have accumulated such a weight that God can no longer neglect their overflowing wickedness. And so God summons them to the valley of decision. Not to condemn them. For they come condemned. For they have gorged themselves on injustice and rebellion and law-breaking. He summons them now to the great vat because it's time to tread the winepress. Verses 14 and 15. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Multitudes upon multitudes within the great vat that is the valley of decision. The stain that they are upon God's 
Reality is about to be crushed, extinguished. Their lifeblood, poisoned with iniquity, spills from their bodies and overflows the valley. It is their apocalypse. The day of the Lord brings them in the valley to a sunless, moonless, starless, eternal death. For them... God undoes creation. Their sentence is hell, an eternal life of death. This is just imagery. There is no real valley of Jehoshaphat. There is no literal winepress that people are going to be squashed in. There's, if you would receive it, maybe no actual war. But these are images that point us to something. To point us to a day that should elicit terror from all who stand condemned. As do the nations with their trinkets before the infinite one. On judgment day, there will not be grapes and there will not be swords. But on judgment day, there will stand the living word of God. And by his word and his word alone will you be judged. His words will sift you and tread upon you and cut you open to see what is in your heart. Isaiah 11 verses 3 through 4. He shall judge by, not by what he sees or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The wicked are killed by the words of Christ. John 12, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So when you stand before God on the final day, what judges you? Or what condemns you? It's you. It's what you have done with Jesus. Did you receive him? Did you treasure his words? And this will be enough. This will be enough to determine your eternal destiny. So in a very, very real way, the words of Christ kill the wicked. There's this scene where Paul and Barnabas are speaking to a crowd of Gentiles. And these antagonistic Jews show up and they try to turn this crowd against Paul and Barnabas, ultimately against Jesus. And Paul says this to them, 
And it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So you see it there. What a person does with the word of Christ determines whether or not they are worthy of eternal life. By Christ's words, we are judged. If we are at war with God, we clash against his word. For it's against his word that we rebel. It's his word that shows us to be sinners. It's his word that condemns us. It's his word that kills us. Or, it's his word that gives us life. (laughs) And I want to remind you of a couple of his words. A few words that he spoke in agony. He was betrayed. And in a few moments, they would take him. His closest friends would abandon him. And he was hours from the cross, and he knew it. And so he prays this. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what's, what's Jesus talking about? What is this cup? What are grapes in a wine press for but for filling cups? Every single one of us deserves to be gathered in the valley of decision and to be trodden down where our sun goes dark and our moon is extinguished. But instead, at the right time, God takes all the weight of our sins and he crushes it and he concentrates it and he pours it into a single cup. And he who drank that cup became our sin. And he said, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he was mocked and he was beaten, and he was publicly shamed, and he was scourged beyond recognition, and he was exhausted by blood loss, and he was impaled by nails, and he was starving for oxygen, and there was, he was rejected by the Father until there was nothing left in his body. All of that was a gift to you and me. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split. The sun went dark, and the earth shook. And Jesus experienced the day of the Lord that Joel is speaking of. Jesus drank the full measure of our sins, and God tread him down and crushed him. He stood in the valley of decision so that we do not have to. Earlier, I said, 
When God treads the winepress, redemption is complete. And nothing is left but love and justice and righteousness and joy in the God who gives it all so freely and Jesus who died so you could enjoy it. The wrath of God turned aside. If you've received this, what I've just said, if you've received this, then you will be clothed in fine linen, white and pure, and you will be given a white horse, and you will have the honor of riding in victory with the one who is called faithful and true. Words that give life. These words that I speak today, one day they will be used as evidence. Evidence that you have heard the words of Christ. You hear them today. Will you be judged worthy of eternal life? Or will you squander these words for temporal pleasures of the world, of the nations. Even now, the summons goes out to all the nations, and this is part of the summons. Are you ready? What will you do with these words? This is the most important question. Are you ready for Judgment Day? And if you sit there and you feel like you are, praise God. Now go help others get ready. Father God, I thank you for your words. That with them you show us life. We are so unworthy of it. We ourselves are just brimming with sin. But you forgive and you've taken away every one of those sins and poured them out upon your Son. It's unfathomable, this gift that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that we would receive it. The very depths of our soul that we would receive it. And the words of Christ would be our greatest treasure. Nothing else would take us away from the words of Christ. Lord, help us to do our part if we have received these things. To send out the summons. To prepare hearts for judgment day. To show them the value, the treasure that is Jesus Christ. Let us be faithful stewards of what you've entrusted to us and not squander these days. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.